0: Hello, and welcome back to Making Sense of Money, a podcast dedicated to making financial topics easier to understand. I'm Andrew Pellegrini, one of your hosts. Last episode, we had on Donovan Sanchez, one of my colleagues from University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He's in the financial planning program. And we talked about different aspects of balancing living your life right now with wealth building for the future. And if you're interested in learning more ways to balance those things, check out that episode.
1: And I'm Nikki Giancola-Shanks, your other host. We're so happy you're here listening to us. Along with making financial topics easier for everyone, Andrea and I are also bringing you guests and topics on some of the hot topic topics financial news or policies. So today we actually have a special guest on who's my colleague from IDFPR, which is Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, David DiCarlo. David is the Regulatory Innovation Officer. And today he's going to share more about the goals of his new office and the unique things he'll be working on. So David, can you introduce yourself?
2: Thanks so much for having me on, Andrea and Nikki. It's really good to be here. I've spent my career in financial policy and regulation and you know, that started off at the Federal Reserve. I spent a little bit of, in private practice and then came to IDFPR originally as deputy general counsel for banking. And um, just about a year ago, stepped into uh, becoming the first regulatory innovation officer and starting up our office of innovation here at the agency.
0: Thank you, David. So I understand that your role is very new within IDFPR. Can you explain what your division's mission and vision is for serving Illinois consumers?
2: Yeah. So our main goal is to promote responsible innovation across all the industries regulated by IDFPR. And our big focus over the last year has been fintech, and the way we kind of go about it, there's there's two approaches with our, with our unit. So one is coordinating policymaking at the agency. The reason that's important when it comes to something like fintech is we really do want to take a holistic view. Traditionally, you've got kind of these lines and regulations between banking and other consumer protection regulations, but the fintech firms can cut across those. So we're trying to break down those silos and have a comprehensive look what it means to do good policy in this sector, and then the other role is serving as a central point of contact. So uh, my door is o- open for innovative firms, consumer advocates, and also I do a lot of reaching out to other regulators uh, at other states to to talk about these issues, and and that's always good to get the input so that we can make the best policy.
1: You actually mentioned one of one of the buzzwords that I'm going to ask you about. So fintech and digital assets are two terms, I feel like, that are everywhere lately. What do those words actually mean? And, like, and what is a fintech firm? And what exactly are digital assets?
2: Well, the, the fintech is, it's kind of a catch-all, I think, for companies that are innovating with technology on how financial services are delivered to consumers. And that can really include so much from new types of loans new types of loan products to faster ways of processing those loans or or payments between folks and and with businesses and then cryptocurrencies and digital assets and you know digital assets i think briefly and maybe we'll get into more detail on this later they're often thought of as a as a digital representation of value and there's different forms of technology that digital asset but but crypto assets using a cryptographic techniques so that you can transfer that value between between individuals across the network
0: Thank you David. I think that we've touched on Fintech in the past in this podcast before and we described it more globally with different examples of Fintech because financial technology has been around for a long time right if you think about financial technology kind of globally and so the new Fintech buzzword, usually is in reference to newer technologies, not like online banking, which is a type of fintech, but it's kind of old versus the the cryptocurrency. So hopefully our listeners are kind of getting a better idea of like fintech's the broad term and you focus more on the newer type, the innovation aspect of, of what you do. So the fintech industry as a whole, it's really grown in recent years. What do you think has been the type of impact this has had on consumers?
2: I think the main impact is it's opened up a lot of new options for consumers. And there's opportunities with that. There's also some some challenges as well. But to continue to describe some of that impact, if you take an example from payments, just even Back a couple of years ago, as of 2021, Venmo, you know, the app that people use to send money to each other, it had 75 million users. That's a huge number in terms of just the number of adults that could be using a platform like that. And then if you look at something like personal loans in just the last um, five years or so, fintech firms have doubled their share of new loans, whereas you know banks and credit unions as a result are representing less of that market. So there's there's new firms um, who are, as you said, using technology in the innovative ways to try to deliver these you know traditional banking and other traditional financial services and, and you're seeing some of that impact in, in consumers then having more choices.
1: So can I ask um, a question that came to my mind as you as you were talking you, were, you gave that, that statistic about Venmo in 2021. Has the pandemic, Helped at all speed up some of this? Cause as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, banks were closed and <laughs> so I feel like it would make sense that fintech kind of got a big boom almost during that time.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think one area actually was with crypto. So it it kind of, you know, there's there's some data and you know, some anecdotal kinds of evidence too that seem to suggest that, you know, that market, especially in 2020, took off. And, you know, there was sustained growth throughout the last few years, you know, before, you know, kind of the middle of last year, um, what a lot of people have been calling crypto winter, um, because there was collapse of some major firms, you know, tended to then, you know, see some some folks not as interested in in getting involved in that market.
1: It's so interesting, because I feel like Andrea and I have we started this podcast during COVID, so we always joke that we always have like a question every episode about COVID, but I almost feel like this is a different type of question because it's about something picking off and growing bigger rather than what type of catastrophic things have happened because of the pandemic. So it's it's interesting. We've We've talked a little bit about this. We've touched on it a little already, but the fintech and digital assets, they're still very new. And as you were saying, it brings about both opportunities, but also challenges when something is brand new like that. So let's start first with opportunities. I know that there was hope that this new te- these new technologies may be able to help people who are unbanked or underserved. Is hmm. that the actual case?
2: I think there's... There's some evidence for that. I mean, it's, there's also, it's, it's kind of mixed um, as well. So let, let me try to describe that. So, you know, on the one hand, in terms of the promise there, you've got some research that tends to show that fintechs are more likely than banks to offer mortgages and personal loans to consumers with, you know, that may have lower income or lower credit scores, you know, that, you know, traditionally underserved populations. But on the other hand, there's some other research suggesting that actually fintechs aren't necessarily allowing access to credit for those underserved borrowers any more than banks. What, they're, what they may be you know, doing, and, and perhaps it's inadvertently, is, is serving folks who just are a little more impatient uh, with banks and, and like how quickly the fintechs might process those loans compared, compared to some banks. And so the, there's some tension there. And I think it's not entirely clear. The picture, even though you know it's it's like fintech has been disrupting the industry for for quite some time already. You know, in that example, it was just about offering credit, which you know, I just want to talk about this a little bit more. It's it isn't necessarily the the key metric. Figuring out whether fintech firms are improving consumers' financial situation is is more tricky. And so, the best thing we can do is, I think, just closely examine those types of claims when we hear them and and dig into the best data that we have.
0: I think we asked you a pretty challenging question because even in the financial education or financial well-being industry, it's hard to kind of holistically look at an individual's financial capacity and financial well-being. And we use different metrics in research and academia to measure those things and trying to correlate like something that's already very difficult to measure with the impact that new fintech services have had on it which are very broad is just very challenging so i'm sorry we also, we we were like hey we're going to give you the tough questions right off the
1: bat <laughs> Well, and I just remember when I I read a, lots of different papers when we were researching, I think when we first did a podcast about FinTech, about some of these, what they were hopeful for regarding underserved communities. So I know it, it still remains to be seen in a lot, but I think it's interesting because I I have noticed just from my lay, layman's layman point of view that I feel like a lot of people are like, this is going to be great. And now they're like, well, yes. <laughs> Let's see type like there it's i and I don't know if that was just because it was the newness when everything was really starting, but
2: it, and <laughs> it's and I agree completely i mean it's a it's a tough kind of issue, and to get the measurements of these things, you know there's a lot of academic research that have been looking at it, and it's it is you know interesting that you've got you know some some different perspectives despite you know some years of uh, data and some very nuanced research techniques looking at the data, even, even on just the, the offering of, of credit point. Um, but then as you mentioned, Andrea, kind of getting at that financial well-being aspect is is gonna is is pretty tough. And so um, there's there's some opportunities there, but I think we should be aware of some of those those claims as well and evaluating them very closely.
0: Well, I think that involves balancing some of the optimistic opportunities with recognizing where there are challenges. And and since with your role, what do you think the types of changes that have been implemented or you've seen within the fintech industry have provided as far as concerns go for for consumers?
2: So there's a kind of a challenge around just how much the fintech firms, the, the way in which they interact with the traditional banking system. So that's this whole topic of Partnerships between fintech firms and, and banks. There's been a lot of growth there, and the collaboration, you know, kind of in and of itself can, can be very good for, for both those, you know, both the banking industry and the fintech firms, and then potentially for consumers. For the regulators, what can be, you know, sort of the, the areas to watch is trying to understand all those new types of arrangements and, you know, to kind of spin it out a little bit more. The fintech firms, you know, often, you know, would, would play the role of becoming the customer facing, whereas then, and, you know, through an app or their website, but then the bank is in the background, making a loan or sending the payments and is, is kind of the infrastructure, so to speak, um, behind the product. And what regulators, you know, are still trying to grapple with, I think, is making sure that the banks sufficiently understand their fintech partner's business. And don't become over reliant to the point that that you know possibly the bank loses some kind of grasp over the risks to the to the bank's finances and its operations. So that's kind of from the perspective of you know putting on banking regulator hat, which is not the seat I I sit in currently. But you know I know from the discussion, uh, a lot of it is happening with among some of the federal banking regulatory agencies, and the states are involved as well a lot of, there's a lot of discussion around, around how to manage that.
1: And I know part of your new job, I would assume, I mean, I, I know a little bit, but I'm assuming that, that also means your, your office in particular is probably doing a lot of work or, or at least closely watching things on the federal level as well. Right. Cause I mean, obviously in banking, we have the FDIC and the, you know, that, that we work with, and I'm assuming there's gotta be entities that you will work with as well. Maybe some of the same.
2: Yeah, so part of that that kind of goes back to with the off with office of innovation, we're not unique at kind of setting up an office of innovation at the state of Illinois. So what what I and some of my state colleagues or at federal agencies that have them will do is it's it's a natural kind of point of contact among the different regulators to share information about best practices on things like bank fintech partnerships to identify issues, to discuss them. You know the on kind of the you know each uh, regulator's you know banking supervision side of the house. They also have those channels as well, but they they have so many different issues that they need to focus on. And so there's kind of this more horizontal sort of everything fintech you know approach that can be helpful to you know to check in on with with our counterparts at other agencies.
1: What about consumers in all of this? Um, what type of new risks are there to consumers? In the fintech industry.
2: Yeah, I think um, it's kind of a, it's not unique to fintech, I'll say, but there is there is an aspect of, you know, frauds and scams being one of, one of the biggest risks, unfortunately. And, you know, I think, you know, part of that is if you take the example of some of what we've seen in the payment space is it's just so easy to make a payment over an app. And a lot of times those payments can't be undone or they're very tricky to undo. And so it's, it's just really important. There's, there's risk for consumers there to be aware of that, you know, they understand for their part, you know, when they're, you know, dealing with someone they don't know that you send that money, it's, it's going to be hard, hard to get it back potentially. And then it's not just consumers though, because from my point of view, fintech firms and banks potentially could be doing a, a better job in some cases of thinking about how can they guard against kind of the use of their platforms for fraud and scams. So that's that's an important you know area that there could be some room for improvement. You know, just to kind of talk through some other issues around um, in a different realm around data. I think it's always it's and we'll have a common thread through all of this. There's this kind of opportunities and challenges with any new technology, but when it comes to um, loans. A lot of fintech firms and banks are, are making loans to consumers by looking at data in a different way. They're not necessarily just looking at traditional credit scores. They can take some you know, non-traditional forms of data, you know, even kind of you know, social media presence or you know, all sorts of things that they can put into a model and an algorithm or even use artificial intelligence. And so that's, that's very innovative and it can open up potentially um, access to credit for, for people with lower credit scores. But the flip side is, you know, if we're not, you know, carefully monitoring the introduction of biases into those new algorithms and ways of looking at data, you know, that, that can be an inadvertent, you know, discrimination on individuals as well. So those are just some examples, you know, there's, you know, as I said, there's a lot of opportunities here, a lot of um, new risks, you know, when we're dealing with new technology.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is kind of a new era that we live in, you know, in terms of technology and and risk and knowing how to protect ourselves and things like that. So it's it's yeah. <laughs> um but speaking of risk and, and things like that, I know just from working at IDFPR that we recently had to actually enforce some consumer protections around the fintech company Chime. Um, I know that this was talked about a lot in our agency. I think even before you officially took this role at the innovation office, I remember you being our our lawyer for DOB talking about it as well. So, um, But around the fintech company Chime, so can you explain to us a little bit about what happened there and what IDFPR did or how they got involved?
2: The, the situation with Chime, you know, that goes, it does go back, you know, a couple, a couple of years. This is a, this is a non-bank fintech company that, you know, had some, you know, very significant growth and a lot of success in, in getting new customers onto their platform. And, and what they do is they provide checking and savings accounts, you know, paycheck advances and, and credit cards kind of like a bank. but they're not a bank. They partner with banks, as we talked about earlier, for, for some of those you know, back-end functions. And Chime is the customer-facing side of it, but they don't fall under the same sort of regulatory structure that, that a bank would. The problem was that we and other regulators were seeing with a lot of Chime's advertising, and, and that was whether it was online or sometimes. Um, you know I saw when I was writing the CTA, their, their print advertising there. It really suggested that Chime was a bank when it when it wasn't. And that's just potentially misleading to consumers. And we saw in, in evidence and consumer complaints where you know people were referring to Chime as a bank that kind of you know confirmed for us that there was some misleading advertising there. So what we did was we worked with some other states to, you know, really investigate some of those advertising practices and You know, after a a several months process, there we were able to enter into an agreement where Chime said they would reduce the, you know, get rid of those misleading advertising practices, as well as put some disclaimers on their materials that they're not a bank. And then ultimately, they paid one of the largest fines ever to the Division of Banking as well. And so all that's public in the consent order. It's kind of an illustration of um, IDFPR and other state regulators using using some of the current regulatory tools that we had to um, you know try to try to address an unregulated financial services company. I can't
0: tell you how appreciative I am as a consumer advocate that your role exists, David, and you are enforcing this. Because as you were talking about this issue with Chime, I was thinking about there. There are several instances in the past probably five years where I've had friends or colleagues send me a FinTech kind of service and ask me, is this a good place to bank? And it would have to, it would take me a long time to figure out whether or not it was a bank. And usually it wasn't. And so I would explain to them essentially that they weren't a bank and they partnered with a bank if I could find it. I couldn't always find it.
2: Yeah, I'm not, you know, not not surprised to hear that, Andrea. There's, uh, you know, there, there have been other companies out there like this. You know, Chime was one of the ones that was, uh, you know, had grown quite large. One thing, you know, kind of a, as kind of a, just a follow-on to this part of the conversation, what we did hear from other regulators, you know, after that was that by Illinois and some of those other states taking that public enforcement action, they started to see some of those other companies um, also adjust their practices and use similar types of disclaimer language. So um, I think there's more work that remains to be done there, but it shows where we could have some, you know, some success in trying to um, help consumers understand what they were dealing with.
0: So David, I know that Nikki and I have covered this a few times with our
2: previous co-host
0: Jake in the past, but For some of our listeners that might have missed it, can you tell us the difference between cryptocurrency and digital assets? I think we've touched on digital assets being broader, but if you can more explicitly or more succinctly kind of describe the differences, that would be helpful, I think, for our
2: listeners. Since a lot of people have, let's start with the cryptocurrency, and, and since a lot of people have heard of Bitcoin, you know, I will mention that that's the, you know, one of the more prominent cryptocurrencies. But that ha- whole category, what, what cryptocurrencies are is they can, they can be moved around electronically from person to person. And they don't keep track on a record or a ledger of who owns what with a centralized institution like the central bank or, or, and the banking system do with, with our money or in the case of stocks, you know, it's a securities depository is, is what, you know, is kind of the centralized institution there. And then there's the securities brokers that we're more familiar with interacting with instead, what cryptocurrencies use is a distributed network of computers and, and they use encryption technology to verify and record transactions on a distributed ledger called the blockchain. So no No individual institution is kind of responsible for, you know, just, you know, verifying and recording who owns what. So that's that's cryptocurrency with with a with the digital assets. That's a that's a broader category. So so the cryptocurrencies are a form of digital asset or what sometimes are called, um, you know, crypto assets really, the the thing about the technology behind the cryptocurrencies is, is that they don't have to be used for something just like Bitcoin. they They have been applied now to other things like you know crypto securities. And then there's even a, uh, a lot of central banks around the world. And then in our country, the the Federal Reserve, our central bank is doing some very early research around, you know what it would it look like for the central bank itself to, issue a digital form of money using a form of crypto technology or another form of technology and and that could be considered you know a digital asset as well a central bank digital currency could be considered a digital asset too
1: and just for me personally because you mentioned bitcoin it was actually andrea because i was when we first started down this path however 3 years ago now like talking about it i was so confused and andrea kept having to be like bitcoin think of it like kleenex it's actually a tissue Everybody calls it Kleenex, but that's the name of it. And so like I, okay. that's always helped me when it's come to stuff uh, because I was confusing myself.
2: <laughs> right. So the, like Bitcoin is a brand of, of cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah. And there are many, many,
0: many different brands. Um, one of the other things that I think of as a, an example of digital asset is kind of newer than cryptocurrency an NFT or non fungible token, which some of our listeners may have heard of before as well, so that fits under the digital asset category. Correct, but it's yeah. not the same as crypto. It's a different type of digital asset.
2: Yeah, so they're they're a little different, and and this will be at the risk of oversimplifying things. I, I do want to use an example because I think it's probably you know the best way for our discussion to to to, to illustrate it. With an NFT, you know, someone can, for instance, create a digital piece of artwork and then use uh, NFT technology to show that that was the original digital copy. Now, of course, you know, since it's, you know, if if somebody then like pull it up on their computer screen to look at their digital piece of artwork, they could take a screen capture or, you know, even a photo of that piece of artwork but it wouldn't be the original digital copy and the nft is kind of the method that people then would use to say that this particular copy is is the one that you know was the original
0: in in both cryptocurrency and nft both use blockchain technology that we've mentioned in the podcast before correct so it, yeah, in case right. anyone's heard of blockchains it's the back end of both types of digital assets
2: that's right and what's what's different about the cryptocurrencies though is and this is where the kind of the non-fungible terminology comes in is that it doesn't matter to, you know, anyone whether they have this bitcoin or that bitcoin it's it's it, they can be interchanged with an nft they can't be interchanged it's it's meant to point to a particular record, you know, on the blockchain associated with that with that digital piece of artwork that we were talking about
0: Thank you for clarifying that. I never was completely clear on that, so that helps a lot. In moving towards our our long-term goal with this <laughs> this conversation, we've talked a lot about crypto already and cryptocurrency. Who do you think is most likely to invest in crypto based on what you've seen?
2: There was actually a recent study by JP Morgan's Research Institute that was really helpful because it it looked into some data on this, you know, since JP Morgan huge national bank with users all across the United States, they were able to look at the data. And what they found was about 15% of U.S. adults actually have used cryptocurrencies, pretty pretty big percentage.
1: But I'm sorry, can you, did you say 15 or 50?
2: 15, yeah, okay. 15%.
1: 15 is still really big. I was just like, wait, I needed to make sure I heard it correctly.
2: Yeah, 15%. And those uh, users... You know, again, this is from the JP Morgan study. They they do tend to be men. They tend to be on the younger side. So we're talking the millennial generation, roughly mid-20s to about 40 year, years old, depending upon you know, who you ask. But that's kind of a, the demographic. In, in terms of race, that study looked at it. There's also some surveys that have kind of shown consistently that actually Hispanic, Black, and Asian investors are more likely than white investors to buy cryptocurrencies. Not necessarily by, by a huge margin, but the, there's kind of a, a, a trend in the survey data there.
1: That is very interesting. And we will put the link to that JP Morgan survey in our show notes because it was a report that was released that's obviously public, but it may interest some of our listeners. So we'll put it in the show notes if you want to read about that a little bit more in depth. It was very interesting. So, David, for crypto newbies like myself, what does it actually mean to have crypto? Like, how do you know how much this crypto is worth? Can I use that crypto anywhere, like money?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think um, they're all fair questions, though, because they're they're more than fair. They're they're deep questions. Crypto, you know, I guess one, you know, to answer one of them right off of the bat, the simple probably answer for the is that you can't use it anywhere, like you can with money. That's, that's kind of the, you know, probably the easier question that you ask, but in terms of, you know, what does it mean to have it and what is it worth? You know, critics do point out that it's, it's really hard to know what cryptocurrencies are worth. And, and that's because they're basically worth what people are willing to pay for them. It's not like a, you know, stock in a company where either the company is deciding to pay you dividends over time, or you know that company is making money. They could also do you know other forms of of getting that money to their shareholders. So there's there's you don't have that with cryptocurrency. So you don't you don't have kind of that cash flow to value. They're also different than the U.S. dollar because part of the reason the U.S. dollar and other national currencies get their value is that they're legislated as legal tender. So in the United States, it's just a fact of life that you have to use dollars to pay the federal government the taxes that you owe. And, and that that gives some value to, to the currency.
0: I have a follow-up question. I am also more of a crypto newbie, but I've been plunged into the deep end a little bit since I inherited some cryptocurrencies when my brother passed away last year. But can you explain stable coins and the idea behind stable coins? Because I have heard from multiple people that swear by these stable coins cannot lose value. It is impossible, and I I'm like, well, real currency loses value. So, can you just explain kind of what's going on with stable coins for us?
2: Yeah, and I'm and I'm sorry to hear about uh, your your brother Andrea. Um, you. And you know, I um, I'm sure that's you know very challenging for you um, with with these types of investments, and you know, especially trying to learn about them. You know, from from that sort of scenario, it's there's there's a lot of nuance to them, and you know, one of the challenges is that, and we'll talk, we'll you know, we can talk about this some more. Is there's not kind of a comprehensive regulatory framework, so you don't have like with, you know, stocks, kind of these investment disclosures that are high, you know, super regulated. What types of information and how the risks are disclosed to investors. The idea of a stable coin which is a jargony term, but it's kind of supposed to do what it says it's <laughs> in the name. It's supposed to maintain a stable value with the US dollar or there's you know there, there's stable coins that may be linked to other national currencies. And they're actually often used by cryptocurrency traders so that they can very readily, buy say we keep going back to the Bitcoin example because it's so prominent, buy Bitcoin in exchange for stable coins that they have or or vice versa, rather than have to, you know, take the money from their bank account and then you know convert it, etc. The problem we saw last year with uh, was with a stable coin called Terra USD. And the, the problem was that there was the mechanism used to support the value of that stable coin was inherently unstable. It it wasn't necessarily backed Buy anything but other cryptocurrencies, actually. And so when people started losing faith in the value of this kind of interconnected web of cryptocurrencies, the value of Terra USD collapsed very quickly. Another reason, just briefly, although it's important why stable coins are significant, is federal policymakers and regulators are actually pretty worried about them, that they could make the financial system unstable if they continue to grow. Um, on the rate that they had been growing before, before last year, and and if they aren't properly regulated, and so there's there's actually a group called the President's Working Group on Financial Markets out of the U.S. Treasury Department, and they produce a report on these issues, and it's it's one area where we could see some federal legislation. Actually, also the Financial Stability Oversight Council at the federal government level has made some recommendations on that.
1: Yeah, we actually, Andrea and I have a webinar that's called Memes and Money, and we talk we very briefly talk about some of these issues in there. And we actually have the report as as one of our sources for information. So again, we could put those the reports that David just mentioned in the show notes as well. So, what are we've we've talked a little bit about this already, but just spell it out. What are some of the risks and benefits? of investing in crypto because I feel like we we've been talking a lot about how it's unregulated and things like that but there's got to be a reason why people still are using it or want it.
2: Well let me start off and you may hear me say this a couple times today that I'm not going to give it investment advice here but I can you know I can kind of talk about some of the you know the general risks. There's one kind of overarching one which is that with any investment is making sure really understand what you're investing in and that, that can be challenging for cryptocurrencies, because they'd always come with easy to understand disclosures about how they work. And, and you wouldn't be alone if you kind of you know, followed the approach of making sure you understand what the investment I think invest in. Um, I think Warren Buffett actually has you know, talked to that. That's one of his primary <laughs> criteria. I do want to mention, too, that the reason why kind of really look, you know, looking under the hood is important is it's terrible to see. But there's bad actors that have kind of taken advantage of the, some of the excitement around the new technology to create fake crypto investments so, and, and other types of schemes. So you got to be aware of that as well. One of the you know, other risks is these cryptocurrencies. Um, recent kind of market activity has been that they're, they're very volatile. And that means that the market prices are swinging up and down a lot. So, you know, anyone looking at this just has to be aware that you could lose your entire investment. There's there's no, you know, guarantees that you'll, you'll make money by investing in this, you know, and, and it's kind of, the, I guess, to the question of, you know, why do people do it? Um, well, there's, you know, there are some use cases that are more on the payments kind of side that people are experimenting with and kind of understand and that innovation is, um, you know, reason why people get involved, you know, in terms of, you know, the more you know, speculative investments, you know, there's, there's people that are feel that they're willing to take a certain amount of risk, perhaps with, you know, some of their investment portfolio to see if they, they can, you know, make some money on some upside.
0: David, I think you did a good job of kind of explaining the volatility as, as one of the, the risks to consumers or crypto investors. And I'm sure we'll talk about more specific instances and a little bit about where this has happened. But can you describe what happens when a cryptocurrency fails, when a token fails or cryptocurrency fails?
2: Yeah, I think when we talk through some examples, if we want to do that, it'll help illustrate things. But the basic point that I did want to kind of say up front here is that since cryptocurrencies aren't insured by the federal government, like bank deposits, uh, the bottom line is that the collapse of a cryptocurrency you're holding means you could lose everything that you put put into it. So that's, you know, the the downside of what can happen when a cryptocurrency plummets in value or, you know, becomes valueless.
1: And it does seem like every day I'm reading or hearing something about crypto in the news. And I know that there has been some very recent headlines that I thought that we could kind of chat about to start with. Can you explain what happened with the, crypto cur- the cryptocurrency exchange, FTX?
2: Yeah, FTX w- was an exchange for buying and selling cryptocurrencies. And the company behind it is, is now in bankruptcy. And it's a, it's a very unfortunate situation for a lot of people. A lot of people were using that exchange not only to buy and sell and transact in cryptocurrencies, but also to store their cryptocurrency and that's tied up in, in the bankruptcy proceedings. But then also there's another aspect here, and that's that regulators, law enforcement and the bankruptcy court are still trying to figure out exactly why FTX failed. But it ap- it does appear that the leadership of that company, since they've been charged with fraud, diverted customer funds from the exchange to a hedge fund, to a trading firm that they owned. And they may have lost a lot of customers' funds and, and cryptocurrency on Wrong investments.
0: That is a, a type of an example of injustice done to consumers that makes me want to flip a table.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, you know, very, very discouraging to, to see that. And, you know, as I said, the you know, kind of investigation, the prosecutions will continue and, and the best that we can hope for out of that situation is that they're able to recover some, some funds for some of the users.
1: Yeah. Cause I was reading that even if they they do have some right now, right, like some money or crypto or whatever, you know, since it's all tied up, nobody has access, like nobody who invested has any sort of access to what they bought.
2: Yeah, so some of it is, some of it is potentially just gone. And then some of it is tied up indefinitely. And that's the result of the bankruptcy proceeding. Because, you know, at the beginning of a bankruptcy proceeding, anything that's deemed sort of part of the company's assets is is frozen. There's an automatic state that, that applies. And you know, this is at the risk of oversimplifying because there, there are sometimes ways that that you know, things that are truly the customer's property and not you know, a company's property can get can get back to them before the bankruptcy proceedings are over. But that, you know, it gets it gets uh, very nuanced with some of the legal issues. And then you know it's not clear that FTX did everything in the first place that would have kind of allowed customers to be able to get some of those funds back before before things were all done.
0: I'm sure that you said this at the beginning of your discussion of FTX and what happened with FTX, but can you explain what a cryptocurrency exchange does and if there are multiple types of services that it does? Because when I looked up FTX, I was like, it does a lot. So... <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, you're hitting on a, a number of important points there. So um, in terms of, you know, that, you know, what would a crypto exchange exchange do? You may even ask, why do we have a cryptocurrency exchange? I thought the whole, you know, purpose around these cryptocurrencies was that, you know, they're supposed to be decentralized. You don't really need somebody in the middle helping to facilitate it. Well, I mean, it, it, there's some different thoughts around this, but my kind of thinking around it is, you know, one, one contributing factor May be that it's it actually takes a lot of information and effort and you know understanding of you know how blockchains work to you know do some of the transactions d- directly and you know consumers many consumers may have found that having you know an intermediary for um, an intermediary is just kind of you know another jargon term for you know an exchange is a type of intermediary uh, a broker would be another type of intermediary. Some, some consumers may have found that, you know, transacting on the exchange kind of reduces some of those time constraints for them. And another aspect of it, too, is actually on blockchain for the Bitcoin, for Bitcoin, transacting on the blockchain can, can take some time. And so um, what the exchanges actually do is you can you can trade w- with the exchange and, you know, settle that transaction Potentially more quickly than it would, you know, it would take to go directly on the blockchain. So there's there's a number of reasons why these exchanges have stepped in, and we do see these middlemen, so to speak, in the in these cryptocurrency markets. The other issue you you touched on was FTX was was doing a lot of things. Yeah, they had the the cryptocurrency exchange. They also had a um, derivatives exchange for um, derivatives on on Bitcoin and just a number of other affiliates um, like the trading firm that we spoke about uh, that took some of the customer money and then some you know, different you know, offshore types of companies and investment vehicles. And that kind of raises the question of, you know, if there were more regulation in this space, some constraints around making sure that there's no conflicts of interests or just at least disclosures of the conflicts of interests, that exchanges and brokers have when they're transacting with their customers would, would be a better thing, in my opinion, than you know what we saw happen with FTX was this interconnected web of companies that had a lot of conflicts of interest. Thank you,
0: David. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I also think from a consumer access perspective, exchanges provide a user interface. We're used, to, like, as even tech-savvy people that may not do programming for a living. For instance, I'm familiar with websites. I'm familiar with smartphone applications and exchanges provide those types of user interfaces to be able to exchange or purchase or sell cryptocurrencies. So that seems like a benefit to consumers, but it also, provides a, an intermediary that might take advantage of
2: you. Yeah, it's it certainly is is possible and then in the absence of some regulatory structure, you know, be, becomes more more likely in fact. Yeah.
1: So as people watch all of this unfold, right? Many people are beginning to speculate or say that there that these types of fallouts may actually bring about significant changes to crypto. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that, David?
2: When these types of failures occur in financial markets, I think historically, you often do see a regulatory response. So, you know, with the, you know, 2008 financial crisis and and Dodd-Frank being, you know, a a big example of that occurring, I I think you will see states and the federal government heading in that direction. I think there's, um, you know, still more discussion around some of the frameworks that, that, makes sense, but it will be necessary to, you know, address some of the regulatory gaps so that consumers can be better, better protected.
0: So we often warn our listeners about scams that we know about that are out there. And I know there are a lot of opportunities for scams to occur with digital assets. Specifically, we've kind of touched on where there might be opportunities. Are there any specific scams regarding cryptocurrencies or other digital assets that consumers should watch out for right now? That might be more popular.
2: I think what what we're seeing in crypto it just kind of falls in the category of technology can be used for good or for ill purposes. And folks that would be inclined to you know figure out a way to conduct a scheme, they're, they're you know, now seeing some of the potential to use it with this technology. So people, you know, do need to be careful. You know, the FTC often has some information that consumers can look at on kind of the current frauds and scams to be aware of, or, you know, SEC, since they do play a role on uh, crypto assets that, that are considered um, securities under under federal securities law. Uh, and, a, and CFTC and, you know state regulators putting out information materials as well so the, the answer is it's kind of hard to describe all the categories that this can fall into since it's it's a tool that can be used in you know as we said for for some innovative purposes but also for people looking to take advantage and there was actually a very recent example in um, in the news of a, of a firm that has been charged by the SEC with conducting a Ponzi scheme kind of using the hype around around crypto. Um, And a lot of investors, you know, have have got tricked out of their savings. And um, that includes people in Chicago. And it sounds like there was some targeting of uh, potentially a Latino community as well. So there's, there's unfortunately too, too many examples. And it's when 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 somebody's asking for your money for any type of new investment, be wary.
1: That's great advice, David. I think Andrea and I say that maybe on every podcast. Like, <laughs> please be wary, please check. Kind of to go along with this scam and the different kinds of scams out there. Is there any type of regulation around cryptocurrency currently? I know that there is a lot of talk at the federal level. Different bills have been talked about. The SEC SEC has come out with or wants to come out with stuff that you really you talked about the White House report that we will link as well. Can you elaborate on any of that? I mean, I know you don't have a crystal ball to see. Yeah,
2: (laughs) we can we can talk about the current landscape as a baseline there's not a comprehensive framework for digital asset regulation at the federal level or or at the state level. What you do have is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has regulatory authority over digital assets that are securities. And I I mentioned that just a moment ago. One area over the years that they have addressed is initial coin offerings. And that's making sure that investors in those so-called ICOs, have some of the same protections as they would in securities offerings because just because it's a different you know technology that might be used to offer that investment opportunity doesn't make it mean it's not a security as the SEC's position and so if it if it serves the same function as a stock then it's going to be regulated like a stock offering but Bitcoin and potentially other digital assets some of the federal regulators have suggested aren't necessarily securities and and they don't have a federal regulator. The US Commodity Futures Trading Commission has some authority still to prosecute fraud and market manipulation in those types of markets, but that's not the same as having an agency with regulatory oversight for consumers on a more on a more regular basis and kind of do, you know, doing things like, you know, looking into some of these conflicts of interest that we've talked about and uh, either disclosing or or prohibiting certain kinds of conflicts of interest more uh, market-based forms of regulation on kind of what, you know, things can be listed and you know what what types of disclosures you know need to go around those types of investments. Those types of things are not present in in Bitcoin and and some other digital asset markets.
0: So cryptocurrencies and blockchain can be held completely anonymously. We learned that on our episode 25 of this podcast called Cryptocurrency. Uh, almost like cash in some cases, depending on how your digital wallet is set up that holds those assets. With those things in mind, are there any consumer protections available for crypto users that hold their assets anonymously?
2: Certainly, yes. I mean, the, the way most most cryptocurrencies are built, you know, you've got a you know, wallet address that's associated. What's interesting is the ones that are on a public blockchain, a lot of people don't realize that if you know the wallet address that's associated with a the person, then you can see what that <laughs> what that wallet address has has been doing. But you know, from the kind of the initial standpoint of who, if that wallet address, the owner of it remains anonymous, yeah they they can um, they can have some some you know potentially anonymity at least around who it is behind the activity. So I think. You can still address some of those things with regulation because just, just because the owner of the wallet, you know, is not necessarily known, doesn't mean that that consumer can't enjoy the benefits of a lot of these things that we're, you know, we, we would be talking about in, in potential digital asset regulation, you know, types of disclosures and, um, you know, avoidance of conflicts of interest, these kind of basic principles would still make those markets healthier for somebody who's transacting, trying to, trying to remain anonymous in them. Now, if they wanted to make a complaint about some form of abuse, you know, then they almost certainly would have to kind of disclose <laughs> who they are to have some sort of redress under current regulatory frameworks.
0: Well, especially if you're looking at your residence as the overarching kind of legal framework for any protect consumer protection. Yeah. Because like, you
2: get into issues of the jurisdiction and then who's mm-hmm. the regulator who, yeah. um, who can kind of resolve the issue or if, or even if it is, you know, regulated activity in your jurisdiction.
0: Cause Illinois state laws are different from Texas state laws or Hawaii state laws. So that provides Correct. different protections.
2: Correct. And you know, on that point, New York actually has some and it's been for a number of years. They've had state regulation of of cryptocurrencies. Most states uh, don't yet have a specific like license requirement for cryptocurrencies or other digital assets, or or supervision of those types of firms, you know, at, at least with their you know their their conduct of of crypto activities on behalf of their residents. But New York has had success with some of the recent challenges we've seen in in the cryptocurrency markets with you know some some of those companies that have gone under, were not actually operating in New York for New York residents.
1: I feel like we're learning just so much on this podcast today. Um, so if you could give one piece of advice, David, to anyone thinking about investing in crypto, what would you say?
2: So again, since it's not investment advice, but it's more of a, you know, at least how I, you know, approach things. And I think is, you know, kind of a sound thing to think about for anybody staking some of their money and, and some you know putting it in some kind of investment vehicle is you gotta think very carefully about your risk appetite and what's the um, risk of that particular investment and and how much you can afford to lose if things don't don't go the way you hope they will.
0: I think that's excellent to think about regardless of the financial transaction that you are engaging in. So great job, David. What is on the horizon for your new division though, David, since your, your division is new?
2: We have been talking a lot with our peers at other state and federal regulatory agencies and consumer advocates and industry stakeholders and, and legislators over the last year, really about all of these issues we've discussed today, kind of as they've been coming up over the last year. And so we're continuing those conversations this year. And it's and it's in the hopes that we can develop some some good proposals to to address some of these these problems and and really you know, make sure that there's the, the proper protections in place for consumers and there's ability for firms that are innovating responsibly to continue to to do business and, and to grow in our state.
1: David, I know as your colleague, I'm very excited to hopefully maybe get to, to work with you through the division of banking with your new division. But is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap up?
2: I think just an invitation to come talk to us. So there's um just kind of a landing page about the Office of Innovation on the IDFPR website. So, you know, if you go to Illinois.idfpr. Or idfpr.illinois.gov, and you know we can include a link, you know, hopefully in the show notes to the direct Office of Innovation page. But it's pretty easy to find us there on the homepage as well, and you know it has a email address you can get in t- contact with us. And you know whether um, you're an innovator or you're you know consumer advocate or advocate or just somebody who's interested in bringing some perspective to to what we're doing at the state, you know, feel free to, to reach out, uh, drop us a line about what you're interested in discussing, and we're happy to chat.
0: Thank you, David. We can definitely add that link to the show notes as well. And I might be using it. I might be reaching out to you every time I have questions that I think we should be addressing for consumers.
2: Happy to talk with you too.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here today. I know I learned a lot. We're constantly learning about fintech and crypto and digital assets and NFTs and all these very popular and growing topics. I know that this is something that we could probably talk about for several hours, but I hope you can just come back and share more with us in the future.
2: Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. And it's been a pleasure talking with both of you and would love to come back and discuss some more and when when there's you know i'm sure there'll be other developments we can talk about later this year it's a fast-moving area
1: yes there is no doubt about that i have a feeling that david's going to be a repeat guest I have a mind, because something's going to happen um thanks for for being here it's good to to spend some time with you david because i know we we haven't been able to do that lately and then i was actually i was in our office and both times you weren't in the office at the same time I was. So um, it was nice to at least virtually see you. So, and listeners, as always, thank you so much for joining us today. If this is a topic that interests you, as Andrew and I have alluded to, we're we're touching on it a little bit, not nearly as in, in depth with the knowledge of David, but in our webinar called Memes and Money, which we will link as well, you know, as always, please remember to like, subscribe and share Making Sense of Money.